Well, the preaching of God's Word is in Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 through 20. We've read the whole of the chapter, as you'll remember, and to help summarize, you'll notice that Ezra is providing a record of, as he says, verse 1, the chief of their fathers, and this is the genealogy of them that went up with me from Babylon in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. And as he walks through, you'll find a number of names, actually, that parallel the earlier uh, wave of return. And so these aren't the same people, these are of the same household. So families that had been, as it were, divided in some extent at the first return, now some 80 years later are being brought uh, to this place of Jerusalem. And to focus our attention this evening, notice from verse 15 through verse 20. Ezra writes, And I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava, and there abode we in tents three days, and I viewed the people and the priests, and found there none of the sons of Levi. Then sent I for Eliezer, for Ariel, for Shemaiah, and for Elnathan, for Jerob, and for Elnathan, and for Nathan, and for Zechariah, and for Meshulam, chief men, and for Joyarib, and for Elnathan, men of understanding, I sent them with commandment unto Iddo, the chief at the place Cassiphora, and I told them what they should say unto Iddo and to his brethren, the Nethanims, at the place Cassiphora, that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah, with his sons and his brethren, eighteen, and Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, his brethren, and their sons, twenty. Also of the Nethanims, whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites, two hundred and twenty Nethanims, all of them were expressed by name. So here is this record of the second wave of returning exiles to Jerusalem. The temple is built, and there are already dwellers in the land, and yet the Lord is again restoring His people, in some sense little by little along the passage of time. You'll recall that the first wave, which is recorded from chapter 1 and onward through chapter 6, is that which is initiated under Zerubbabel's leadership, and that under Cyrus's oversight, as the great civil leader of the empire. This is roughly in 536 B.C. And now, this second wave under Ezra, it's roughly 80 years later, 457-ish B.C., from chapter 7 and onward, which is recorded to have taken place initially under the oversight of Artaxerxes, uh, the emperor. Another wave will come under Nehemiah and little things will take place along the way. Now think of this for a moment to make some connections. Roughly 80 years have transpired between the first and second wave. You remember, of course, that there are waves of exile that brought the people onto Babylon. And what took place in those generations was the establishing of households and families and jobs. And many Israelites, though, moved away from Jerusalem by force, found favorable conditions over the years to establish their uh, homes and to find uh, some sense of belonging. Now, the first wave has taken place and 80 years have taken place so that that's something that's of a distant memory for most. And life has gone on. And yet the Lord would have his people return to Jerusalem. And so he's orchestrated, as we've seen in previous treatments, this uh, return again, now under Ezra. And Ezra rejoices to recount the heads of households. But you'll notice in the text there's something that strikes Ezra. And so he notices, verse 15, that there are certainly chief men or something equivalent to like elders, respected leaders and so forth, and there are also priests present. But he says that as he viewed, 
the people over these three days. He's taking inventory of them and so on and seeing the needs and other such things, perhaps preparing them for the longer journey uh, through great troubles as will be indicated in subsequent passages. He sees that there are none of the sons of Levi. Now this is significant because the Levites were those charged of God to tend unto uh, the various activities within the tabernacle and later the temple. Now for us this may seem insignificant, but for any Jew living in this day it would have been seen as something of a great gap, a great need. In American culture, when something's missing, we think to ourselves, let's just figure it out on our own and let's make it work. Unfortunately, this has been uh, the large approach to church in America and the West. Well, if something's missing that ought to be there, let's just manufacture a response. But you'll notice the text, Ezra, a man who was a scribe well studied. Remember how it was indicated, Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. He, who knew the word of God, said, well, this is a gap that we can't manufacture an answer to. We need God to arise and provide us what is lacking. There's tremendous instruction. Though there's not, as it were, a one-to-one relationship between the office of the Levites and officers in the New Testament, yet there's a principle that's acknowledged that Ezra sees the gap and doesn't say, well, we'll just make do and carry on. He makes then an appeal. And this is what he does. He gathers these chief men, men, as he describes in verse 16, of understanding, and he sends them with commandment or commission unto another chief man who lived in Cosiphia and told them what they should say. And he appeals to them for Levites and for Nethanims who would serve in the temple of God. Notice verse 18, Levi, or Ezra ascribes the favorable response to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah, with his sons and his brethren, 18, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, his brethren and their sons, 20, also of the Nethanims, whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites, and so on. What's caught Ezra's heart, that God has provided for the gap. The absence of these Levites and Nethanims was not something he said, oh well, we're just going to go along and figure it out. It's not through the industrious inventing of Ezra that such a gap is made up. It's through the diligent seeking of those who were set apart to these under Old Covenant ways, that the Lord would bring them and establish them for the benefit of His people. Now, why is this significant? It's not significant because, well, we have Levites today and Nethanims today or a physical temple today, but it's significant because the temple, of course, is the outward display of the presence of God. It's there where he makes his name known. It's there where his holiness is, as it were, manifested in various ways. It's there where the gospel is most clearly articulated through the sacrifices that were administered. And what Ezra sees is, for that to be clearly proclaimed, to be enacted and carried out as God has established, the officers who are set apart to the various demands must be present. Otherwise, we suffer loss. And so Ezra sees this, he discerns it, and he thus appeals that the Lord would raise this up through his seeking. And when it is given, it's then that Ezra rejoices. By the good hand of our God upon us, they brought this man, that man, these men. For what purpose? For the ministry of the house 
of God. Now, it is not our purpose to give an in-depth consideration of all things that the Nethanims and the Levites uh, did. It is rather our purpose to see how it is the Lord provides men for the work of the ministry and ultimately for the good of His people. That's the essence of what captures Ezra's attention. They were desirous, Ezra was desirous, notice verse 17, that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. Now we ought to be careful. The term ministers for the house of our God is not the same. It's not to be with an equal sign to ministers of the new covenant or ministers of the gospel today. But there is an essential overlap in this, that the ministers of the house of God were set apart for service within the temple, and ministers of the gospel are set apart for the proclamation of what the temple held forth. And so there is an essential agreement, although not an official agreement, between the same. Now, the benefit of this is, just as with the ministry of the temple taking place, the people benefited through the assurance of their sins pardoned, through the proclamation of peace and divine instruction. So, under the new covenant, the officers of the church are so established for the good of the church. that They would know the guidance of the Lord, the gospel of forgiveness, the assurance of their sins pardoned, help in all of their various difficulties and trials, so we can see indeed the principle that directs us. So let us consider how it is the Lord provides such men for the good of His people and the ministry of service to His name. We'll think in three ways, seeing how it gladdened Ezra and why it gladdened Ezra. First, by considering the church and its calling. We use church broadly, the people of God, which would include the old covenant administration of the, new, of the church and the new covenant, the people of God called forth. So the church and its calling. Secondly, the church and its need for a ministry. And thirdly, the church and its pursuit of the ministry. These three things to help us both understand why Ezra was so focused on this and why Ezra was so gladdened as to include this as a record attributing it to the good hand of the Lord upon us. Firstly then, the church and its calling. What's stated here is true of both the church under the Old Covenant. We ought not to hesitate to use that term church for our forefathers in the faith under the Old Testament because in the book of Acts we find it used that the church which was in the wilderness... The word church in Greek for the New Testament refers to those who are called out, which is, of course, the truth of Israel, which was called out, not only out of the world in general, but out of Egypt in specific. And they were called out of darkness unto light. They were called out of bondage unto liberty. And so there is, of course, unity between the Old Testament and New Testament church. But what is it's calling. Well, let's first see that the church is a called people. This is an important emphasis throughout Scripture. So here's Ezra leading a wave of those returning to Jerusalem. That's a significant historical point that they were outside of the promised land, they had inhabited the land of Babylon and Persia, as it would be known as well. Here they stand as strangers from the promised land. If you're reading this as a Jew, you're wondering, in some sense, if you're ignorant of the preceding history, what's going on? Because this people were the people God called out of Egypt onto the promised land to inhabit this place to the praise of God. But there's more involved in the fact that God's people are called. Fundamentally, we can ask the question, why are they called? To what end are they called? They weren't called, ultimately, just to live as you know, an agrarian life or a shepherding life in that tract of land known as Israel today. They were called, fundamentally, for the praise and worship of God. But you'll notice in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 
some aspect of this truth, when in verse 6, God says, Thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord, hath, the, the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto Himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Think of that statement. God's people, both in the Old and New Covenant, the one people of God, are the people upon whom God has set His love. Instead of all the nations, I'm setting my covenant upon you. Now, of course, that covenant will expand, as it were, to include the Gentiles that will be brought in. But we ought to see this point. The church is a people set apart unto God. They're a holy people. They're a people set apart unto the Lord. This is something that Peter picks up on in 1 Peter chapter 2. Perhaps a passage, if not memorized, yet a passage very familiar to your mind that Peter says, verse 9 of chapter 2, Ye, that is the church, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He'll go on to apply this for the abstaining from the fulfilling of our fleshly lusts. But notice that fundamental and prior to that application is the statement of what we are. And what we are is, by God's grace, calling us. We are a people called out of darkness into light. We once were not a people, Peter says, but now we are the people of God. This is the identity that is fundamental to the church. If you are asked, what is the church? Well, there are many definitions that can be used, but fundamental to being the church is that we belong to God. We are called unto God. We're no longer to serve the world. We're no longer even to serve ourselves. We're not to be, as it were, our own masters, We are rather those who are set apart unto God. But the question can come in the calling. What's the purpose of this calling? There are many ways of identifying it. We saw in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, that you're called, listen to this language, to show forth the praises of Him who called you. Your purpose is to display the glory of God. This is true with your lips. This is true in your speech, in your sung praise, in your spoken praise. Although it can become formulaic, that ought not to cause us to ignore the calling we have to testify of God's praise. We should be those who are able to speak to others and say, God is good for what He's done here. Whether it's recounting the record of Scripture, Oh, God be praised! for His redeeming work through Christ. Oh, look at God's faithfulness in the time period of the judges, His long-suffering, and yet as His people cried out to Him, how He answered in mercy and so on. There are many things that we should be able to speak to one another from the Scriptures. But we should also be able to speak to one another for what God's doing today. Oh, though trials have come, God be praised that He's opened His Word to me. Though I'm struggling here, yet God be praised that He has made known to me the riches of His salvation. Oh, though my outward man is falling apart, though these things are falling apart, yet God be praised that Christ is in heaven preparing a place for me. We're called to show forth God's praise. You know, there's this identity crisis in the world. This identity crisis has run in ways that we could not have assumed or anticipated even 50 years ago, such that men are now wondering, what's my gender identity? And women are doing the same. It's gone crazy. It's gone insane. Mentally disordered it is in our day today. The church should never have an identity crisis. 
Because fundamental to the church is this. I belong to God. I've been redeemed by God. And my identity, here's my purpose. It's to show forth His praise. But brethren, we don't do that only by our speech and sung praise. We do that also by our lives. And so it's instructive that both Peter, and if you were to read, of course, through all of Deuteronomy as earlier read, you would see that there is an emphasis that we show forth His praise in living for Him. That we are a people set apart. Peter says that we should no longer fulfill the fleshly lusts of uh, ourselves. Paul will emphasize this as well. Christ tells us, of course, that we are to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow Him. He calls us to walk as those who are children of our Father in Heaven. And we see this emphasis all throughout the pages of Scripture. That's because it is so that we are no longer in the darkness of the world. The called out people of God are brought out of a dominion of darkness into a kingdom of light. Brethren, here's the shame that so often men who profess to live in the kingdom of light live almost insignificantly different than those who live in the kingdom of darkness. Their speech is little, if any, different. Their actions are little, if any, different. Their families are little, if any, different. Now, of course, God is pleased little by little to promote His cause and His people. But, brethren, it ought to be the case that we show a difference in our speech and actions, that we are a holy people. Not just with our mouth singing praise, but with our lives displaying the Lord's praise. Now, how is it that God's people are brought to worship God truly? Whether it is in public, here considering the temple, or whether it is today public as in the gathered church, or how it is in our own personal lives as we serve the Lord. Well, the Scriptures emphasize this. We need Instruction. Ezra, uh, uh, not coincidentally, is identified as a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord. And he is gathering people who will teach others. You heard in 2 Timothy 2 that Paul calls Timothy to instruct men who themselves can teach other men to observe these things. For what purpose? To serve the Lord. So as we think about the church and its calling, we need to see that it's not something of a magical change that all of a sudden God's people are now made willing and able to fulfill their calling of serving, worshiping, and uh, honoring the Lord. But rather, as God makes this call, brings them into His covenant, He also provides them the means whereby they would learn more of God and by which they would then walk according to the Word of God. And this is all included in this desire of Ezra. So we've seen the names that are mentioned, and yet when it is that he takes inventory of those present, though he finds priests, Malachi 2 tells us that the priest's lips should keep knowledge, he himself was a scribe, and there were those in Jerusalem already who were serving, yet he sees there's a lack of those who would assist the priests in the service of the temple, and in various other responsibilities. And he doesn't say, well, we've got other things, that's okay. He sees the lack as something that needs to be rectified. But the reason for this is not so that he can pat himself on the back, but rather as a student of God's Word, he realized this is both the way that God has ordained, and as it's the way that God has ordained, it's that which will benefit the people of God in their knowledge of God and worship of God as well. So the church and its calling are set before us in these ways of seeing the officers that Ezra both identifies and seeks for the function of the ministry in the temple. Temple, of course, where God set His name. This place which was to be a place of prayer, this place which was holy, this place which through its various instruments and furniture testified of the glorious holiness of God and by the bloody sacrifices and priestly service 
and that which was assisted by the Levites of the mercy of God. What Ezra is saying is, oh God, we need the full testimony of these things if your name is to be praised and if your people are to be benefited. This leads us then secondly to the church and its need for the ministries. Ministry. The Levites were those who were separated to the service of the temple. You remember that at the Passover, God redeemed all the firstborn. Well, then it is later that He, as it were, substitutes the Levites in total for the replacement of all of them, so that instead of every firstborn, as it were, repairing to Jerusalem and doing this dedicated service, the Levites would fulfill that work as a tribe. And so, Deuteronomy 10, verse 8, testifies of the Levites being set apart. The Nethanims are here identified in chapter 8, verse 20 of Ezra, as those whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites. It's interesting, both Nethanims and Levites has within its notion this idea of being set apart. They're set apart unto God to serve the worship of the Lord. Now, we ought to note that the need for such officers is not absolute. In other words, the church can exist without officers. You see this, for instance, in Titus. We read this a few weeks back in chapter 1. Paul exhorts Titus to do what he was supposed to do. He says, I I left thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. This is Titus 1 verse 5. And ordain elders in every city as I appointed thee. And so churches were already there in various cities, and yet there was still something wanting, something lacking. What was lacking? Elders. And so Paul doesn't look at it and say, well, let him just figure it out. He says, no, we need to rectify this issue. But notice The church existed without elders, but Paul acknowledges that it was in a state that was less than ideal and healthy. Historically, theologians note this to be the difference between the being of the church and the well-being of the church. So you can think of your body as being in existence even when it's sick, even when it's, as it were, riddled with fever and pains and sores and incapacitated and unable to do all the things that a healthy body can. But when your body is healthy and well, it's able to go about its work and service with some degree of ease even. And the same is true of the church. The church without those things which constitute its well-being is still a church. So for instance, if a church loses its pastor, if you know, there are unthinkable things perhaps that might be considered, you know, session meeting, and all of a sudden all of those in the session died as the church ceased to be. No, the church is still gathered, but now they're without that which assists and strengthens and oversees and helps and blesses the people of God. And so it is, as Ezra surveys these things, he doesn't say, well, we've got the people of God, and we've got priests, and we've got me, and we've got these great families and this great number of men and uh, rich and well-off men and we've got all of this supply from the king and everything else, we don't need to worry about it. No, he takes note of it. And as one who was studying the Scriptures, he says, well, of course, God's people are still God's people, but in that there are none of the sons of Levi, it's the church in a less ideal situation in a less healthy situation. So what does he do? He seeks to rectify it. And he sends these men of understanding to Ido, another man who held a chief office in Cassiphia. And as they go, they verse 17, ministers for the house of God. And so though they are not absolutely needed, as if the existence of the church depended upon ministers, elders, deacons today, or priests, Levites, Nethanims then, yet it's still something that is good. In other words, it is beneficial for the people of God to have these officers that God has ordained 
to office. So we can say, though it's not absolutely the case they're needed, yet they are truly needed for the well-being and benefit of the people of God. This is Ezra's point. This is Paul's point, Titus 2, or 1 in verse 5, as we noted. Notice as well in the book of Acts, at chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, and there at verse 22, it speaks of uh, Paul and others going about confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, here's what some today would think. They would think, well, Paul's done his job. There's the people, he's visited them, and so now they're able to be sustained by their grit and faith and so forth. But notice, instead it says, verse 23, when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Similar to what Paul said to Titus, that he should go and ordain elders in every city, which was a thing lacking, wanting. So Paul is ordaining elders in every church for the good and benefit of the people of God. In Ezra's day, there were those who were set apart to the priestly office. There were those set apart to the Levitical office, the Levites, to assist the priests, the Nethanims as well. And these were by lineage, of course. That's not the case under the New Covenant today. But nonetheless, you'll see that they were set apart by God's Word for the purpose of service. And the same is true under the New Testament, that these are set apart by God's Word for the purpose of service. These are they who are to be dedicated unto their calling. Notice in the New Testament, 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy rather, and chapter 1. 1 Timothy and chapter 1. And notice Paul's exhortation to Timothy at chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. Thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. There is no less dedication of New Testament ministers than there was of Old Testament ministers. Both are to be wholly dedicated to their office. Now we grant that as Paul was one who mended tents and so on for the sake of the ministry not being chargeable to others, there are permissions when such need arises for there to be, as is called today, tent-making service. But it is the purpose still that even those who engage in tent-making service would be so filled with the things of God's ministry that that would be merely to sustain and support and not to be a distraction. The ideal being that in due time that would be able to be set aside, that there would be comprehensive focus upon the ministry. And so you can see parallel thoughts between Old Testament ministry of priests and Levites and so forth as they were dedicated unto their service and likewise New Covenant ministry which is to be dedicated unto the same. Now you'll also see that just as Ezra perceived the benefit of such, even Levites and Nethanims added, Paul indicates benefits when he says, if you do this, if you take heed to yourself and unto the doctrine, if you meditate upon these things, giving thyself wholly to them, in doing this, verse 16, thou shalt both save thyself, but notice, and them that hear thee. There's benefit to the people of God. In other words, the dedication of these officers is not for their glory. It's not for their elevation in the sight of men. It's not for their ease. It's not for any of these things. It's for the benefit of God's people and the praise of God's name. And so, of course, you can see this we sang, in God's providence, it's always wondrous to see these things. 
We sang the psalm that gives rise to Ephesians chapter 4, Psalm 68 at verse 18. And you'll notice Paul commenting on that and helping us understand it says in Ephesians 4 and verse 10, He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And what did Christ do? He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and so on. What's Paul's point? The ministry exists first and foremost by Christ's ordaining, by His providing, and yet that is so for the benefit of His bride. And so though we can think of perhaps the lesser service of the Levites and Nethanims, yet they were serving for the benefit of the people of God. And we can likewise think of officers in the church today. Their purpose is by Christ for the benefit of the people of God. And so it is that we see the church has a need for the ministry. Again, not absolutely. The church exists by God's grace through the profession of the faith of Christ Jesus. But they stand in need for their maturing, for their strengthening, for their shepherding, for their helping, for their growth and development. That they indeed, as Paul says, may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. When we get a glimpse of this, we'll no longer simply sort of tolerate as it were just a thing that is the absence, for instance, in our church of deacons and the single minister and single elder that we have. We'll give thanks, of course, for the officers we have, but we'll see, oh God, if we're to grow, we have need of these things. And this isn't something that we come to God with as if complaining. Rather, we come to God as requesting what He provides His people for their good. God, this is Your purpose for us. If we're to grow as we're to grow in Christ, we have need of these supports. Now you can think of it this way. Is one able to survive on bread and water? Of course. And if that's all that God gave us, we would have cause to thank God for bread and water. But there are ways of deriving more minerals and nutrients and so on from a more balanced diet. And when it is we have access to that, we find, as the Lord works, our bodies stronger, healthier, and so forth. It's not that we don't have life merely on bread and water, but we have a more abundant physical life when we have access to a more balanced diet. The same is true spiritually. It's not that we can't be sustained, even in times, for instance, of persecution or privation, without a minister, without an elder, God can sustain us. And He has done so. And brethren, He's doing so right now in various parts of the world. You'll remember our brethren in Nuevo Laredo stand without a minister. And we look at them, and the more we get to know our brethren there, the more at times astounded we are at how the Lord's able to sustain them and bring forth beautiful fruits of grace in them. And yet we could be, in some subtle way, led to think, well, this is really supposed, how it's supposed to be. But instead, we'll look at it as Ezra looked at it and say, wait a second, as I'm serving and taking inventory of these things, I'm seeing that there's a lack here. There's not a minister or there's not a deacon, or there's not an elder, or there's not as many elders as there could be, or should be, or whatever else it is. And we'll start to humble ourselves, not to say, well, this is needed for Presbyterianism. Rather, as Presbyterianism is founded on the Word of God, this is needed for the benefit of God's people. And so when this is understood, it will lead as it led Ezra. Thirdly, to the pursuit of the ministry. This is rather needed in our day as 
Perhaps it isn't every day, as we cannot speak with first-hand knowledge, but it's interesting that Christ, when he has his disciples with him, on one occasion says, you know, the fields are white unto the harvest. Pray that the Lord would raise up men, workmen, that would go forth into those fields. And so it may be that every generation should be struck with the need for such men. Now notice, Ezra discerns the gap. He discerns the lack. And what he doesn't do is invent a solution. He doesn't say, well, I'm a scribe, and we've got men that are pretty well qualified for a variety of things, so we'll just make do. Or, hey, you, I know you're not really a Levite, but would you serve as a Levite, do the functions of a Levite? Or, hey, you, you know, um, you have someone by marriage who's a Levite, right? You can fit in. Or, hey, is anyone willing to serve as a Levite? Ezra doesn't do any of those things. Rather, he seeks those who are Levites to serve as Levites. When he finds that there are none of the sons of Levi, then he sends a commission to go and seek them out. In other words... We do not pursue officers for the ministry by inventing solutions. We don't make, as it were, stop gaps invented by the mind of man to solve problems that only God can solve. Now, in our day, you can see this well-intending, doubtlessly, we have no hesitation to acknowledge the same, well-intending Christians see the gap and they say, well, we'll fix it. And so this is, by the way, how you came in various times of church history with women preachers. There are men who, well, they're not living up to their standards. They're unwilling, whatever else. Well, we need someone to preach, so let's bring a woman in and so forth. Now, there are other less well-intending reasons for that, but this is doubtlessly one such occasion that many can testify of having heard. Well, there's no one to share God's Word, and here's a woman who's intellectually gifted, well studied and so on, surely she can at least fill the gap. Brethren, it's in violation both of what are the clear qualifications and offices of the New Testament, but it's also not in accordance with the way such gaps have been filled in Scripture. Such gaps are filled in Scripture not by inventing solutions or manufacturing answers, but by seeking God's provision. And so this is what Ezra does. He sends this commission, and it's not as if Ezra is certain of a fruitful response. But as he sends, notice they brought back, and he ascribes this to God. Verse 18, By the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Malai, the son of Levi, the son of of Israel. So the Levites weren't represented in this, but now they are. And more than that, notice the Nethanims. It's interesting. He saw none of the sons of Levi. He seeks to rectify that by pursuing it according to God's order. And in addition to the Levites, others are brought. The Lord, as it were, saying, here's a greater blessing than you at first Sought. So, in other words, instead of inventing solutions and manufacturing an answer, Ezra diligently seeks the Lord's provision. Here, according to the Old Testament standard for these, the Levites and the Nethanims, for service of the tabernacle and temple, and yet in our day, the same is to be the case with reference to lacks in church as well. And so we have qualifications given to us of elders and deacons, and we have them given to us, for instance, in 2 Timothy 2, you see a few of them, 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have Titus as well, and scattered throughout various qualifications. This is telling us something. Those qualifications aren't optional. It's not as if we can say, well, you know, this guy is really charismatic and gifted, You know, he gets a little tipsy with the alcohol, but let's just look past the drunkenness because otherwise he's a very able man. No, we say that man is not qualified. Here's a man who knows the Scriptures well 
and yet his marriage is in shambles. Well, that man's not qualified. Here's a man who's very orthodox, very given, but he loves to squabble, and he loves to be involved in all sorts of uh, rancorous debates and everything else. Well, that man's not qualified. And we start to say, well, who am I to say who's qualified and not? And of course, the answer is, we're no one. We don't have the ability to say who's qualified because the qualifications are given by God. And it's simply us discerning. Does this man fit the mold of what God says in his word? Could you imagine these men that were commissioned to return to Ezra and say, listen, Ezra, you know, we know that you sent us to find a son of Levi. Well, we're sad to say we couldn't find a son of Levi, but we found somebody who's willing to do the work. What wouldn't be written in the Scriptures is verse 18. By the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us, and so on. But brethren, in many instances today, the church has become satisfied with this thought. Well, we can't find those qualified, so what we're going to do is put somebody else forward. Well, how else are we going to fill the gap? You see, brethren, far from this being some sort of distant, unrelated, and irrelevant idea, it's actually tremendously relevant to our day. Because as we survey the church, we can see many things that are not how they should be. And what we mean by that is not just the sinful things, but rather we mean we see the lack of officers. We see the lack of men preaching. We see the lack of uh, uh, those planning churches and uh, serving as elders and deacons. And we could be tempted to one of two things. We could be tempted to say, well, you know, who cares? We're the church still. Or we could be tempted to say, well, this is important. Let's force somebody into this. Both are contrary to the ideas of God's Word. When we see the lack, we are to pursue the fulfilling of the ministry in the way that God has established. It's interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in addition to qualifications that are given, both of elders and deacons, there's also something of a warning. 1 Timothy chapter 3 And you'll notice, after giving qualifications of bishops or overseers, elders, he also will speak of deacons in verse 8. And he says in verse 10, Let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon. Don't just sort of, in a very little way, say, well, they seem to have it. But let them have time to show that they are proven men. And then go forth. Elsewhere, Paul will say, uh, lay hands suddenly on no man. Don't just be moved to say, here's a need. Here seems to be a qualified man. Let's set him apart. Brethren, churches in every nation have been grossly impacted unto their harm by men unqualified and yet quickly thrust upon the church. And so what's the point? Well, Ezra actually provides us guidance were to diligently pursue the Lord's good hand of provision. And so where we see the lack, we can do a number of things. It's not recorded here of Ezra's prayer, but surely we can pray that the Lord would do it. We can exhort men earnestly to consider whether it is that the Lord's calling them to office in the church as minister, elder, or deacon. We can encourage men in whom we may perceive such gifts, and yet not in some presumptuous manner saying, most certainly is the Lord calling you to the same. But the point is, where we see the lack, it is actually incumbent on us to seek the Lord to provide the lack. In other words, we don't provide the lack. You don't provide the lack. The church doesn't provide the lack. God provides the lack. This is an emphasis throughout all of Ezra. Here's a need, here's a trial, here's a trouble, here's a lack, here's a want, here's a problem. 
And what happens? The Lord provides, and then ascribe to the Lord's praise is thanksgiving. And so here's the lack. Ezra seeks out diligently to pursue the provision. God provides it. God gets the glory. There's going to be this travel through dangerous lands. And by the way, they'd be easily picked off with all of this gold and silver that they're carrying. And yet Ezra does what? He sets aside time for fasting and prayer, seeking God's provision, and God ultimately provides it. So what do they do? They thank God for it. This is the model for the provision of all the needs of the church. We earnestly petition God, waiting upon Him to provide. And when He does, we ascribe unto Him praise and thanksgiving. Brethren, as we close then, here is a need for us in our own day and circumstances to consider. You've heard reference made in our own congregation. We're small, and the Lord has graciously sustained us, and yet... We don't have a deacon that necessarily falls upon then our elder in many ways. And we could use other elders as well as we are forced to have the assistance of another elder. But here's the point. We can't manufacture it. We can't force anyone to that which Christ doesn't force them and guide them and call them. But we ought to feel something. There's a lack in us because of the lack of of a deacon and an elder. And so instead of that causing us to become depressed, it ought to direct us unto prayer. God, you see it more than we see it. And we're only learning to realize that we would be better off if there were the full provision of all the officers Christ commissions in the church then that we would be more fully equipped to show forth the praises of Your name. And so, God, we pray, raise up such things. But brethren, it would be foolish of us to focus upon ourselves alone. We have brethren, you can think of it, for instance, in Nuevo Laredo, you can think of it in other places as well, who don't have a minister. And oh, brethren, what a need it is to have the Gospel ministry that Christ and Him crucified would be preached, the sacraments administered, and we should enter into their longing and pray with them for their provision and do what we can to strengthen the hands of our brethren there. We close with this. Let us remember the purpose of God's church, called to set forth, to show forth the praises of Him who hath called us, and realize that the gospel ministry and Officers in the church are actually God's provision to assist us in the knowledge and grace of the Lord to fulfill that calling. And if we have even a partial provision of that ministry, we have a testimony of the sincerity of God's mercy to us to assist us in our chief and highest calling for which we are able with Ezra to say, Oh, praise God for the good hand of the Lord that is upon us. Would you stand with me for prayer?